0: This is Capitalize Your Finances, the show representing you, a select group of excited, ready, and fired-up listeners seeking to potentially maximize your money moves and get after it. We don't settle for generic advice of always and nevers. Our currency is our intellect, and we constantly seek the logical way of likely creating advantages to potentially maximize wealth for our personal and unique situations. The show brings you the step-by-step framework to capitalize your finances in the aspects of your financials. Situation, and we strive to explore strategies and ideas to potentially help you capitalize on your financial decisions. We are Capitalizers, and this is our show.
1: Welcome back to Capitalize Your Finances. As always, I'm your host, Christopher Apaniotu, the cap in Capitalize. And today, I will be answering some of college graduates' most pressing financial questions. Now, more often than not, unfortunately, We see people hop fresh out of college with next to zero idea of how to financially sustain themselves. And I need to stress that for the recent college graduates that are listening in, this is by no means your fault. And in terms of diving into the college financial literacy discussion, that's going to be for another time. But for those of you that have graduated in the four, five, or sometimes, uh, six years, unless you are super interested in the world of finance, I am going to take a crack at predicting that financial literacy, true financial literacy, was not stressed upon your minds at all. I'm not saying your major isn't valuable, although for some of you I could argue that as well, but what I'm saying is that even the faintest idea of financial success was not gifted upon you by your professors. Now, Fortunately for you, I did some digging and found some of the top financial questions that you, our recent college graduates, have at the top of your mind when it comes to coming out on top of your own capitalized financial success. So without further ado, let's get into the questions in today's episode. So the first one that comes up all the time, Cap, do I need a budget and how do I create one? Now, the short answer is yes, you will certainly need a budget. And this is a great question, and know that for those of you that had that question, you're not alone, as the majority of college students don't have a budget whatsoever. According to usnews.com, only 39% of four-year college students actively use a budget while in college, let alone post-graduation. For those of you that are new to listening to the podcast, what I want you to do is take out a piece of paper and just start writing down things that you either know you will be spending money on per month, so for example, rent, utilities, food, gas, internet, you name it, and as you get going into the next chapter of your life, if new expenses come up that you hadn't thought of initially, simply go back and add it to this list. Remember, the lifetime of financial success is not a one-and-done type of thing. It is a forever evolving type of thing. One of my favorite investors, Monish Pabrai, this guy is known for his checklists. And he maintains these checklists to keep him in check before he makes a particular investment. Now, even though he doesn't publicize what is on this checklist... He's mentioned that the questions keep piling up. And you know how many he had as of this recording? 174 questions. Back in the day, he started with 15. 15 questions. So if one of the most successful investors in the world continues to evolve, know that you will too. And that is a wonderful thing. But anyways, back to the expenses list. Once you have these down, think about the expenses that you simply cannot avoid. So off the top of my head, I would say rent, utilities, food, internet, basically your deep down unnegotiable needs. Now take out another piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it. On the left side, title it needs or fixed expenses at the very top. And under that, all of those deep down unnegotiables, that's where those are going to be placed. On the right-hand side of that paper, titled The Wants, or Variable Expenses, some of these that come to mind are, oh boy, uh, I guess I'm blanking a little bit, dinners out, subscriptions, so Netflix or Disney Plus, basically anything you know you don't technically need, but you either want it or deeply desire it. What's left is going to be really straightforward for you. Look first at the needs list and write down the monthly dollar amount that each one of them costs every month. If there's a range, I'd write down the high number just to be conservative. Now, do the same thing on the wants list. And this is sounding really simple. And what's great about this is, it is. So now that you know what you are either definitely going to spend per month, as well as most likely spend, the next step is to look at how much you are making and figure out if you are going to be positive or negative and going backwards. Now, if you're positive with that number, that's great, and that's where I get into capitalizing your gap money in my book. If you are negative, have no fear at all, as that is a more common than not Uh, circumstance in you will simply need to go backwards to either see where you can cut back on so more likely uh, or not on on the wants or if there are high interest debts that you are paying on you're going to want to tackle those pronto and we call that capitalizing your expenses and capitalizing your debts but as for the budgeting side of things that is a simple straightforward way to create your budget many people like to use various apps to track their expenses. And the most popular one out there is Mint. I'm sure most of you have heard of it. And I'm also not opposed to using something like that. But the bummer with immediately jumping into the technology side of anything is these apps do not teach you to critically think about where your money is actually going and why. They just give you the numbers. So... Follow what I said to a T, alter it as you evolve in your career, periodically, let's say quarterly, and in no time, you will be setting yourself up for a lifetime of financial success. Now, the second question that comes up all the time, whether it's in my DMs on LinkedIn, people emailing us in, even if I'm just walking around, talking to friends, family, you name it, what does investing mean? So I got to admit, when I was reading over some of the questions, this one stopped me in my tracks because it's one of those things that if you're in the world of finance, everyone knows what it means, but rarely can anyone simply articulate what it actually is. So to get the technical answer, I did some digging. And according to investopedia.com, investing is one of the key strategies to building long-term wealth and financial security. To take it a bit more, I don't know, shall we say straightforward, the Oxford Dictionary's definition is to expend money with the expectation of achieving a profit or material result by putting it into financial plans, shares, or property, or by using it to develop a commercial venture. So, basically... You're taking your money and through some sort of an exchange, whether it be through your friends, a family member, an online investment company, a financial advisor, or a planner, you are buying these different businesses or pieces of businesses, which are commonly referred to as stocks. You could buy pieces of real estate, privately owned businesses, or the many other vehicles that are out there. Now, most of you that are graduating from college are excited to learn and get into investing, but roughly half of you don't know how to get started. So the first thing I would do before anything else is think of your most successful people in your life. And I would just, I don't know, I I would pull three off the top of your head, okay? And if I were you, I would get together with them and I would tell them verbatim, I want to learn about investing and I don't know where to begin. I look up to how you have built your business and family's financial success and could I possibly set up a time to sit down with you buy you lunch or coffee for an hour and just listen to your story. Now, that sentence or or you know, several sentences right there will perk up any successful person's ears as they would be more than happy to help a hungry for knowledge capitalizer like you. On top of sitting down with them and learning everything you can from their personal experience on investing, if you are truly eager to learn how to invest independently, there are a couple tips uh, you can do on your own as well as books I would recommend you go and buy today Now, first, I would go online and look into opening up what is known as a brokerage account. And this is a fancy way of describing an account that looks like a checking or savings account. But unlike those two, you can actually buy various types of investments. The most common are stocks, which, again, are pieces of businesses that you most likely already know and use regularly. Now, I would look to transfer some of your own money into this account and think of a couple companies, again, that you know and love and that you use on a daily, regular basis. Once you think of a few of them, the beauty in today's world, you can look up each one of them and see if they have a stock ticker symbol, which is it's basically the abbreviation to see if you can actually buy a piece of that business or not. Um... And after you decide to buy a share or two of these companies, the next step, it's actually simple and profound all at the same time, is to learn as much about that company or companies as humanly possible. Now, there are many ways to skin that cat, but one of the books that was revolutionary to me was Adam Cecil's amazing investment book, Where the Money Is. There are a ton of books out there, but... My good buddy's book breaks things down easily and understandably so that you can get a base of understanding how to analyze the businesses you own. It's a bit more abstract, but you could also use this book to value real estate investments as well. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. On a much more technical level, one of the books that set the framework for understanding how to read companies' financial statements was one of my guests, uh, Tog Tracy's book, How to Read a Financial Statement. Now, I got to warn you, this is a brutally dry read, but it is one of those things that you have to do if you want to speak the language of business. And lastly, on an infinitely more entertaining note, one of my favorite financial reads of all time is my dear friend William Green's book, Richer, Wiser. Happier. The reason I recommend this book is not because of the technical background, but because William interviews the most successful investors of all time. And after each chapter, if you can relate closely to one or more of of these investors, mark their names down. And after that, go and learn all about them and where they invest their money. Now the third question that comes up a lot is, Cap, do I need to think about saving for retirement now? Now the short answer, and I'm a big fan of short answers, as you've probably figured out, but the short answer to that is a million percent yes. Seriously, the dollar amount starting off early is absolutely insane. In To show you, or to at least explain it to you, because this is a podcast and you can't see me, let's put this into context. So say that you are 20 and you are needing to have a million dollars by the time you retire. So for easy math, with retirement plan rules, you can't take your money without penalty until you're 59 and a half, so let's call it 60. So you got 40 years. And let's also say... That you're gonna earn 6% over that entire time period. Again, compliance wise, hypothetically, this means that in order to achieve the big 1 million by 60, you will need to save and invest $538.46 a month. Okay, it's pretty straightforward. Now, let's say that everything stays the same. The big difference is you start saving at 30. So you know how much you'll need to save per month? It's actually now $1,054.07. So basically double. Now obviously as you get older and have delayed saving for retirement, the amount you need to save to get to that goal becomes massive. But you get the point that I'm throwing at you. Start young and I have the math to back it up for you. Now that you know that you need to think about saving for retirement, a common question I get that follows is, where do I begin? That's a great question, and it's a simple yet extremely difficult one to answer because, frankly, a lot of people make it brutally complex. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to strip the fat, and I'm just going to give you the meat that you need. So where do you begin? The best place to start is to look at if your employer, your new employer, you fresh college graduate you, has a retirement plan in place. And if they do, the top of mind question you should ask is, what is the company match on the retirement plan? And make sure you are contributing at least that much towards your retirement account. And the reason is really freaking simple. It is free money. So if your employer was matching you, I'm thinking off the dome here, which is high risk, high reward for our listeners. If, if your employer is matching you dollar for dollar up to 4%, to translate what that means, if you put in 4% of your salary or commissions or wages, you're really getting 8% towards your retirement. That is massive. This is not the limit. ...on how much you can put into your, your company retirement plan... ...as you can technically put in up to $22,500 in 2023... ...but I generally recommend that people start with the percentage of the match... ...and then gradually on a quarterly basis or whatever is best for you... ...I like to use quarterly... ...increase that percentage by 1%. And you're going to be very thankful that you did that. Oh, and I almost forgot, if you have the ability to do so in your company retirement plan, I'd contribute Roth, which is where you pay the taxes today, it grows tax-free, and when you retire, you never pay taxes on those dollars ever again. Now, if your company does not have a retirement plan, I'd look into opening a Roth IRA, and the maximum you can contribute to one of these is $6,500 in 2023. Now, before we take a dive into some more questions that recent college graduates will need to know, I want to take the time as I always do every episode to give the sponsor of today's episode some time to shine. Roll it!
0: (music) Capitalizers, this episode is sponsored by the best selling book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how to framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. Regardless of where you're at in your financial life, whether you're just beginning to express interest and commitment to your personal finances, at the pinnacle of your career, winding down into retirement, or thinking about your legacy for future generations, this book walks you through every step of the way so you can succeed on your terms and with your own values and passions guiding you. After reading this book, you will officially have Christopher A. Poniotu, The Cap in capitalized, in your back pocket, guiding you in detail through every step of the way so that you can take charge of your finances, not the other way around. Head on over to Amazon.com today and start capitalizing your finances to the fullest with this incredible book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to financial framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. And now, back to the episode.
1: Welcome back and we're on to question number four, which is what is an emergency fund and do I need one? Now I know people that are younger think that they are invincible, but life can come at all of us fast. So it's nice to have some financial cushion in case times are tough. This is where the emergency fund comes into play. So listeners that have tuned into the pod for years know that and know this to be known as capitalizing your savings. But for you newbies listening in, go back to the expenses I talked about earlier in the episode. And for easy math, let's just pretend that your monthly expenses are $4,000 a month. My rule of thumb for clients, regardless of their net worth, is to make sure that you have a floating month's worth of expenses in your checking account. Once that is good to go, depending on your situation, you want to aim to have three to six months of those expenses in your savings. So going back to the $4,000 a month, that means that dollar in, dollar out, you got $4K floating and checking, and then in your savings, you have about twelve dollars to $24,000. Now, if you're single and have a low risk job, I would say three months is plenty, but if you're let's say on the flip side of that, married with kids and working a risky job, like on a construction site where you could slip and break your back or, you know, split a disc or whatever. I'm thinking of really bad things, but you get my point. You could be out for a while. Six months is probably going to be a better bet. Oh, and one last thing. Online savings accounts are going to trounce just about any brick and mortar's bank savings rate. So look for some of the most popular online savings accounts if you can, and use them. That's a fun little free piece of advice, a little bonus on the emergency fund question. Now, question number five, how do I best use a credit card? I actually find this interesting that roughly half of college graduates don't use credit cards because there is a tremendous and just an obscene amount of information out there on the benefits of these items, but more so because a ton of these credit card companies spend millions of dollars towards marketing directly at this demographic. But again, anyways, the best way to use a credit card is very simple. Once you pick a company to open a credit card with, what I would do is look up when your credit card payment is due every month. Once you know that due date, what I like to do is actually set a reminder to pay off that credit card five days before the day it is actually due. And the reason is that every once in a while, you may have a random month where cash just, I don't know, gets to be a bit tight. Life happens. And so you may have to wait a day or two so that you don't go negative. And trust me, I've never gone negative, but I've been really close. And that is never fun. Like 100% of the time. It sucks if you go backwards, so don't do that. And as for the value of a credit card, there's a number of different reasons, and it really depends on what company's card you choose to go with, because some rewards, they just act differently. So, for example, some of them will pay you cash back based on your purchases, others will give you miles for traveling. Some give you points for hotels or events. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But the one common theme in overarching value with credit cards is something the most successful people in business have mastered. It's not really talked about a lot, and it's called the float. So the best way to describe the float is twofold. And first, I'm going to compare a debit card versus a credit card, and then we're going to use uh, some of these examples with the float with with big companies. So let's say that instead of using a credit card, you choose to use a debit card. And with a debit card, whatever's in your checking account immediately goes bye-bye once you swipe that sucker. And I'm not saying, okay, for those that are uberly pro debit card, uh, I'm not saying that they're bad by any means. But with the credit card, you simply get a bit more using them. And also for the record, I'm not uberly pro credit card either. I'm just giving you the advice, okay? So let's face it. If you have spent money to live, like you, you've got to spend money to live anyways, right? So because this is the case, why not get something for spending to live? I know that sounds really weird, but do you see what I mean for a second? As for the float... Because your credit card payment is due once a month versus every time you swipe a debit card, your checking account where that money is pulling uh, the the money from, it can earn a bit of interest. Now, it's not going to be a ton. And in fact, (laughs) in today's rates, it's it's really not going to be a whole heck of a lot of anything. But something is better than nothing, especially when you are starting out. And what you're doing is you're essentially using the credit card system to delay the payment you are eventually going to have to fork out. But because you're floating that payment a month, every month, I might add, you are going to start to think, excuse me, you're going to start to see that money that is sitting there waiting to go away actually make you a bit of extra coin, which is kind of cool. Now, let's get... Let's get big here. Let's use a company as an example. So, where to begin? Let's say that you are going to be entrepreneurial and you're immediately going to go into business. Or, let's say you start working at a massive corporation and you can see their financials, assuming it's a publicly traded company. What I have seen in companies of all sizes that use the float wisely is when they work backwards to know when certain major expenses are due, they make sure that they have the appropriate amount of cash in their proper account and they earn some money while that money stays accounted for. If you look at major companies in various industries, in particular, I see it the most in tech and financial services, these companies Sometimes have millions simply chilling out in the accounts, or what I also see is they will even invest that money as risklessly as possible so by the time those bills come due they've earned in, in some cases it's not all the time but in some cases they could earn upwards of three to four percent on that money that was for all intents and purposes completely gone in If you do research on the float, you will be light years ahead of your peers. But to summarize the simple reason why credit cards can be valuable, float is always going to be your friend. Now, the last question for this episode that we've actually seen a ton, and it's very, very popular amongst uh, you recent college graduates. If I have debts from student loans or I want to save up for a home, or I want to save for retirement and make sure I'm financially secure for day-to-day needs. How do I balance all of this? Now, this is a loaded and phenomenal way to bring this episode home. So for starters, you're going to want to write down your debts from highest interest rate to lowest. Once you have that, set the debts aside. Now, if you have a job lined up, make sure you know what the retirement plan match is at the company. Again, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's worth repeating. Just with these two items alone, again, the match or retirement plan in your debt, here's where I'd start. Regardless of the cash you have saved up, you are going to want to do whatever you can to contribute to your company's retirement plan at least up to that match for the free money. After that, if you have debts that are over oh, 6%, but for sure 8%, anything that you have left over every month, you are going to want to throw the friggin' kitchen sink at the highest interest rate debt. And once that is gone, you do the same thing into the next highest until you have debts that are below 6 Now, during this time... You're going to make sure that you're keeping up with the needed monthly payments of the other debts. Just thrust all that extra money or energy money, you know what I mean, onto the top dog. And once you keep that process up, and this is formally known as snowballing, um, until you have debts that are below a 6% interest rate, you're, you're going to want to keep that snowballing up. But once you have uh, interest rates at 6% or below, you're not going to want to keep Snowball. You're just going to want to keep putting those regular payments uh, at those suckers. And I, I talk about this at length in my book, but the reason is really, really simple. In the long run, your goal should be to earn a 6% return or more. And when you knocked out these high interest debts, you got to think of it this way. You earned that return by paying those off. Not to mention you have more free monthly cash flow. And that's kind of a nice little bonus. Now, I've mentioned in the past that I'd normally prefer to have those build up their emergency fund first before they start revving the snowball engine toward bad debts. But most college graduates are living at home for a period of time after school. So if you fall into that camp and your parents are that kind of humans, take the opportunity... To knock out the easy wins. Chances are your expenses are going to be pretty low living at home. Then you will want to build up that checking in three months emergency fund. Which you're going to be able to do frankly pretty quickly. Since you freed up a ton of cash flow. And are you going to earn a huge return on this exercise? You're not. Okay. But this is to make sure... That you have a cushion so that if something happens, you don't go back to where you were with the high interest debts. And there's some hidden return in that. Now, once you are there, the interesting fun begins depending on your goal. So if you have zero intentions on buying a home anytime soon, your plan just got a whole heck of a lot simpler. You're going to want to aim to max out that company 401k plan of yours. And until you do, don't even think about looking into an individual retirement account or a Roth IRA. Now, obviously, if you, for whatever reason, have a bit of cash left over and you don't need it for an immediate reason, opening an individual retirement account would be a good call with this money. But you want to focus on maxing out your company retirement plan, because all things being equal, your dollars are going to be stretched farther due to the cost being less than custom investments in an individual account of any kind. Plus, simplicity, it's pretty key to being successful. And and don't take my word for it. You can ask any, any of the most successful people you know, they will agree with me. 10 out of 10 times. Now, if you plan on putting a down payment on home, what I would first do is take your gross wage, and this is to figure out how much you can afford, and multiply it by 20%. And that's the general rule of thumb when people are trying to figure out what size of mortgage you can afford. So, going back to another magical example if you make before taxes, I don't know, $5,000 a month, your mortgage should not be above $1,400 a month. And I actually could argue less is better. But keeping with this hypothetical, as I write this, interest rates on a 30-year mortgage are about 7%. So that would mean your mortgage would be $208,000, Well, technically $208,471. And that's assuming you put 20% down on a home, which I would recommend to avoid something called PMI. And due to the crunch time of this episode, as we're running out of time, all you need to know is that it is not fun to pay that. So try not to. And if you put down 20%, that means your home would be worth... Two hundred sixty thousand five hundred eighty nine dollars, or most importantly for this example, you would have saved up to put down on this home fifty two thousand one hundred eighteen dollars. Now, the next question is this: When would you like to have this down payment by? Two years, five years, let's say five years from now, and. To be conservative on investing, we don't want to get too crazy in this time period, we can earn about, I don't know, 4%. Okay, I'm just throwing it out there. That means that if you earn that 4% return, you'd have to save about $801 a month. Now, this sounds like a lot, but also know that as I'm recording this episode, interest rates have risen substantially between 2022 and 2023. So... If interest rates drop in the future, whenever that is, that's going to positively affect both your affordability as well as how much you'd need to save in that time period to get to that down payment amount. And another thing to look out for is the prices of homes themselves. Because if home prices decrease, your affordability will approach much sooner than you think. And always make sure you keep an eye on interest rates and home prices if you're on the lookout for buying a home. But if you're just starting out on the saving for a home journey, build up some of that cash first before you start searching. Don't 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 get too excited on that. And this may all seem like a lot, but remember, you have to break down finances bit by bit and over time i will promise you you are going to get the hang of it i have full faith in all of you capitalizers listening in and especially those that are listening in that are recent college graduates and with that this brings us to the amazing close of our episode capitalize your finances ...as a recent college grad. For those of you that are listening in that did recently graduate, I sincerely congratulate you on your accomplishment... ...and I am personally ecstatic to see what the next chapter in your life looks like... ...especially now that you are equipped with the tools and tricks to kick off your financial adventure the right way... ...and set the stage for a lifetime of incredible financial success... Now, if you had any questions about today's episode, feel free to either shoot me an email, chris at capitalizeyourfinances.com, or you can give me a call at 253-214-3050. That's 253-214-3050. And if you're wanting to hop on the pod as a guest or are thinking of anyone that would be a great guest to have on our show, Head on over to our podcast page, capitalizedpodcast.com, where we check daily to answer fans' questions, comments, concerns they want the cap and capitalize to answer, or special guests they'd like to have hop on our pod. As always, I'm your host, Christopher A. Pontiotti, the cap and capitalize. And until next time, keep capitalizing.
2: The information provided should not be considered specific tax, legal, or investment advice, and is not specific to any individual's personal circumstances. Each taxpayer should seek independent advice from a tax professional based on his or her individual circumstances. You should always seek counsel of the appropriate advisor prior to making any investment decision. All investments are subject to risk, including the loss of principal. This material was gathered from sources believed to be reliable. However, its accuracy cannot be guaranteed. No client or prospective client should assume that the presentation, or any component thereof, serves as the receipt of, or a substitute for, personalized advice from Capitalize Your Finances or from any other investment professional. Examples cited or hypothetical, are for illustrative purposes only, are not guaranteed, and subject to potential federal and state law amendments. There is no guarantee that you will achieve the results discussed or illustrated. Roth IRA distributions of principal from a Roth IRA are tax-free. However, any earnings will be taxed at ordinary income rates, and a 10% penalty tax will apply if withdrawn prior to age 59 and a half, or within five years of the date the Roth IRA was established. Established, whichever is longer. Christopher Paniotu is a registered representative with and securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. The investment professionals are affiliated with LPL Financial and are conducting business using the name Capitalize Your Finances, a separate entity from LPL Financial.